Welcome, friends, to Season 2, Episode 6 of Happy to Fail, the podcast where we empower communities, we empower each other by learning from our past. A couple of weeks ago, we had an incredibly healing conversation about the topic of trauma and the initial steps that we took, that we've seen other people take, that can begin that healing process that for so many people, it can be so scary when you recognize something from your past. And in that road, you may eventually fall into the topic of therapy and speaking to a therapist. And more often than not, it can be a very scary thing because you don't know what it, what's going to happen when you sit there and you have that conversation. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about exactly that. How can I connect or support or build rapport with my therapist and vice versa with yours truly, Juan Velas from Puerto Rico. Joining me once again, I have my good friend from Connecticut, Ana Conde. Ana, are you ready for this? This, this is going to be quite the episode, right? So ready. It's going to be great. And people, don't forget, you can carry the conversation on social media. Happy to fail on Facebook. You can leave that five-star review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and even Facebook itself. It can be uh, pretty, pretty good. But in your case, Anna, why do you think it's so so important, this topic of connecting with our therapist, connecting with that person that we are sharing all of these scary thoughts that maybe that's the very first time somebody's talking about them? You know, I, I think without highly romanticizing, like it can make such a world of difference. Uh, because if you don't feel comfortable with, with the person that you're talking to, whether it's someone doing an intake at a hospital, a therapist that you were referred to, um, you know, if a court system is mandating you to go, like it all comes down to that initial interaction and, and, and that connection. And it's so crucial and it can really, I feel, mark how a person perceives therapy. Um, depending on how that relationship is at, at the beginning. No, absolutely. And in my case, I've mentioned this on the first season where before I finally reached that therapist that, you know, you kind of just like click, you have that chemistry. Yeah. I had gone through multiple. So by the time I got to the person that really made a significant impact in my life, I was in the mindset of you're the next person that I'm not going to like. And it's because so many times we have these past relationships with people like therapists, like family members, relationships, anything that just something doesn't click, but it builds that that fear of being vulnerable with somebody else that you're going to open your your mind, your your spirit with. And you don't necessarily know if there's going to be that real connection. So that's why I think personally, based on my experience with mental health challenges, it's so important we talk about this because I think a funny topic I'd like for us to to begin with is where do you think most people get the stereotype of what therapy actually is? Where do you think that initially comes from? My perception is that it comes from the media. I think it comes from like TV and, and movies, some of which are good, some of which I kind of cringe as a therapist when I see it. I'm like, oh, you're really not supposed to do that. So that's my my thought process. I think a lot of it is kind of what we see in the media. And if we put in a little bit of like culture into it, I do think depending on, on your culture, we, you know, I think we can speak mostly of the Hispanic one. I think there's like a, an attitude that towards therapy that not everyone, but oftentimes can be kind of instilled in us. Like, Oh, you know, quote unquote, crazy people go to therapy. It's a para los loco. When that's not true, and it kind of, you know, already sets a negative tone to what can be a very positive and healing experience. And I completely agree with that, because as somebody that loved to watch movies growing up and somebody that went through therapy uh, from my childhood, 
I remember watching the movies and there's that stereotypical scenario of you're laying down, the therapist is dressed in a certain way, the the light, the tone, the music, even the music. Like I think that's one of the most underrated parts of this. It's like this this just like weird awkward tone of like hi, you you're going to be sharing your story now. And I remember another scenario where I was going to therapy while I was in school and talking about the topic of like, well, only the crazy people, quote unquote, go to it. Every time that I had to be excused from school to go to therapy, nobody knew what to say as to why Juan wasn't there. And I would be the first to laugh because it's like the teacher doesn't want to see therapy. My mother doesn't want to see therapy. Nobody. So it's like, well, Juan needs to go somewhere to do, do, to do something. <laughs> Exactly. And then everybody's just like, is Juan okay? Because I remember when when I was first suggested uh, to my parents, like the school suggested, hey, he should, go, he should go see therapy. My mother, super supportive of that. My father, I can't even say like what he said here. I mean, crazy does not describe that. He began yelling, just saying all that. And I saw that first experience. I was like, damn, there's no way I can go to therapy. Because like, yeah, I, I am definitely not that. I needed it. But it is those stereotypes, and I think that's it's so important that we talk about this before connecting because there is that context that even before I meet you, say you're my therapist, Anna, there are like 20 layers to just try and survive to get to your office, and then I have to hope that there is a possible chemistry, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and I do want to add, kind of funnily enough, my parents are, they're not anti-therapy, but they're not like pro-therapy quote-unquote unless you have an issue or a problem which is so interesting because you know their only child is a therapist um (laughs) like I remember I once I'm gonna take like a second to get a little bit personal my mom doesn't know that I've been in therapy because I've been protecting that space I don't want quite frankly to focus on her reactions to me being in therapy in therapy I kind of protected that space a little bit and I mentioned to my dad at one point that I was so frustrated that you know and I have been going through some things and I'm a little bit more close with my dad and I told him that I was going to therapy and he was like shocked and mind you like this was not too long ago this was within the last couple of years like I was already a therapist and um, I remember my dad eventually towards the end of the conversation saying well you know let's see if things work out and my dad's very sweet. Like it was coming from a good place. You know, I think it's uh, it's instilled in him. But he was like, you know, let's see if things work out so you can stop going there. Like he couldn't even say therapy. And and my mother to this day doesn't know. And again, I'm a therapist. And it's like, I think it's so it's such an interesting kind of contrast to your experience and your mom being so pro therapy, which is amazing. Yeah. and But I remember uh, one time we were at a beach house in Umacao, to be very specific for those in Puerto Rico. And for me, it's like I, I never saw therapy as a problem. So I'd be the first one that I'm like, I'm going to therapy. My, my aunts looked at me like I was going to just light the whole uh, beach house on fire. Like they went to my mom and say, he is going to there for what? What is he doing? Like, has he been sexually abused? Like they began asking all these questions. I'm like, I mean, I have, I suffer from from mental illness, but I actually started just laughing. So in some way, at least in my case, I was resilient enough to be able to laugh at that. But then when you really boil it down, it is once again, just scary to see all of the layers that say we we finally get that appointment, right? It's going to be Monday at 1 p.m. Then you wake up that morning and it's like, wow, 
It's actually going to happen. And then when you actually sit down with that therapist, I think that I, I remember in my case, and I would love to get your other side of the fence and also like from benefiting from therapy, I would go to the office and study every single inch of that office to be like, okay, who's this person that I'm going to speak to? Or what's the lighting like? Or is this person smiling? Not smiling enough, not smiling at all. And then when I sit down, I'm like, what's that person going to say? Because I'm waiting to judge this person. Ironically enough, like I think we do that out of out of fear, right? We're immediately just hoping that I don't like this person, so I don't have to speak to this person. Is that something that you see pretty often in the, in the concept of therapy where we are immediately looking for the first problem to just back out of it? Oh, yeah. And I think I speak more of that also because of my work in inpatient. So I would go meet with someone, they were already over it, and I hadn't even introduced myself. And by the point that they were already meeting with me, they had already done an intake and, you know, kind of gone through the emergency room and all of that. So it puts in a little bit of a different perspective, but that's human interactions. Like, you know, it's like when we meet someone, we kind of, you know, we look them up and down and we inadvertently make judgment or impressions without necessarily even knowing the person. But I so relate to what you're saying about like, am I smiling enough? Am I not smiling enough you know like how do I do it? I remember when I uh my first year of graduate school we would do they were called like I don't know if this translates the same from Spanish to English it's called modulos um so like a module where you would learn and there was like these block training yeah and we would do like live role play and um, and we would do videos that we would then kind of discuss in the whole thing and I truly it took me like a year to kind of break my own little shell and, and be more me as a person in therapy, as opposed to kind of presenting because I wanted to I wanted so badly to present myself as a serious person, but also kind of I felt like, well, if you're in, if you're coming to me, it's because you're going through something. I don't want to be like, oh, my God, hi, how are you? And be overly bubbly and right off the bat kind of like invalidate, like, why is she so happy? What does she doesn't she know why I'm here? So it, it took a long time to just kind of break that, you know, initial shell. And it's it's still a a learning process, you know, and I think any therapist at any stage will, will probably say that. I like that you mentioned that because obviously this is not like a, like an intimate relationship, but it's in an intimate emotional relationship, at least from my side of the fence, right? Because my therapist, and I mentioned this before, I have shared more with like, I've had two specific therapists that I've been like super open with. And one of them they know more about me than more probably my mother, my wife about specific things regarding my mental illness. But to get to that point, think about the relationship that I have to develop with this person that when I leave the office, I'm thinking of, is this person going to gossip or share things about me? Because I know there's like ethical components, but when you're, when you're used to people talking about you and people judging you, these are the mechanisms that you have so you don't open up. So I love the fact that you mentioned the concept that from a therapist's point of view, you do constantly practice the whole concept of do you smile? Not too much because then from my side of the fence, I did judge all of that. Like, what, what? why are you so happy? I'm feeling miserable. What I loved about the last person that I clicked with was that the person didn't make it about themselves. It, it was more of what do you need? Like, like you get to set the tone. Imagine somebody just gave me a controller in that therapist office and it's like, well, what would you like the the lighting to be? Where would you like to sit? And those are the things we actually negotiated. I was like, wait a minute. I actually have a say in how this actually is shaping of where do I actually sit to share that? And that helped me feel really welcome. And that's what we aspire to, you know, and, and that's 
where I, I think and hope that I am right now, uh, you know, with regards to my own clinical skills. I am glad that I brought it up because I think, you know, if you are in the position where you are going to therapy with a practicum student or it's like back in Puerto Rico, a lot of at the clinic that I practice in my grad school, uh, we were all still in school. And, you know, we did practicums at rehabilitation centers, uh, psychiatric state hospital. Uh, so depending on where the therapist is at, it's also kind of, it's a learning curve, you know, and, and everyone has their own style. And I think we certainly all aspire to be able to be at a place where, hey, you set the tone. But quite frankly, I think that also depends greatly on the situation. Like it's one thing very differently to go voluntarily to an outpatient therapist for an intake versus needing a mental health evaluation, a crisis mental health evaluation in an emergency room. Like the, you know, the, the interaction is going to be different. I received both voluntary and involuntary treatment especially when I was in the United States, uh, in Wisconsin, which I mentioned before, that was involuntary because at that point, I, I was just not capable of being able to take control of my life. So naturally, the initial sessions, like it was pure manipulation from my behalf. I'm the best human being ever. Please get me out of here. But what I always appreciated and why I eventually let my guard down is that I saw that this person only wanted to hear me. This person was not judging me. Uh, from eye contact to just so many things that, you know, like imagine I share a very intimate detail about my life with you and your reaction is, whoa. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, hey, I'm, I'm not sharing this so you're surprised. I'm sharing this because I am feeling this. And I remember in Puerto Rico, uh, this was like two years ago, I spoke to a group of practice students uh, in uh, the University of Puerto Rico. It's something that I would love to do again where we coordinated this because I told people like, look, I would love before you have your first patient, participant, whoever, just like ask me anything. It was literally like, I remember I told them like, I will to share every little thing with you. And one of the students, and I appreciated this question was, what would make you hate me? Nice. And that was a loaded question because yeah. even I was like, wait, wait a minute. I, I need a second because usually I answer this quickly, but for you to directly ask me, the first thing that I said is eye contact, lack of, too much. Like the whole concept of you reacting to what I'm saying is that from my perspective as a person with lived experience, like I've done self-harm, suicide attempts, I've had sexual thoughts, I've had violent thoughts in my life. And whenever I would bring these up, you can imagine the reactions, right? It's like, oh, are you really going to do that? No, it is an intrusive thought. That is the whole concept of it. I don't want to do it. So I was used to people having these specific, I even knew the face patterns. I knew like the, like the, oh my goodness face though. Oh, hell no. He's not talking about that face. So I told them like, just, just take it in. Do not judge. Do not react unless I allow you to, because right now you would be like the 15th person that has judged me based on that. And it meant so much to me that they were be able, they were able to just open up about that. And the, on the opposite side is, Speak to me out of curiosity, because that lets me know you listen to me. That lets me know that you didn't have a predetermined answer. Even before we hit record, you and I were sort of like getting ready for the episode, and I mentioned that on the episode side of uh, connecting, one of my therapists, uh, he had to move away from Puerto Rico uh, at one point in my life, and I went in panic mode, because it's like, you lose your therapist, it's like you're losing a, a big chunk of your life, especially me at that point. So 
I did. I felt like I was going through speed dating of just like, oh man, I, I would like sit down with my mom heavily depressed. I'm like, mom, what if she doesn't like me? Or what if I don't like her? Like, what should I dress? And this first person that I, that I met, I cannot stand because you know, when somebody like already has a predetermined answer, right? When, when you see like that little corner of their mouth, like almost about to open and you haven't finished speaking. And that to me is like, well, next person. So the fact that some people open up about that is important because I want to speak to you. I'm not going to a therapist thinking I don't want to speak to you. I need to talk about this with somebody so I can eventually overcome it. But I love the fact that that person was so open about it. Oh no, I think that's a great. And I think that question really speaks volumes of the fear that sometimes we have when we're starting off of quite frankly hurting anybody with you know our eye contact facial expressions listen like with any field there's good and there's bad and there's you know everything in between we all come into this field wanting to help it is a very romanticized vision of psych of clinical psychology and um therapeutic services in, in, in general but Everybody has their own story and everybody has their own style and everyone is shaped through their own experiences, even as they're receiving their own training. So, you know, I, I think of that example and I can't help but kind of wonder, if, oh, that came out very Sex in the City. I can't help but wonder, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, is this to someone who was and I'm not justifying in any way, shape or form, but kind of uh, trying to conceptualize it a little bit from the therapist's point of view. Is this someone who is just eager to help? And it's like, oh, well, I'm hearing this. Maybe this will help. And just kind of, you know, throwing it out there. And, and that might not be the best way to go about it. That might also not be what you specifically needed. But, you know, for the most part, I think everyone's in it to to help in the same way, like you were saying, I'm I'm coming to you because I need something. No, and something else about the concept of connecting is I mentioned that in my story, Part of my lived experience and trauma stems from the relationship with my father. So for me, it was actually really difficult to engage with a male adult. I felt far more comfortable speaking to a female because my mother was supportive, right? right? So I kind of did that by association. So when I was hospitalized in Wisconsin, they were all male doctors and therapists. And that to me was very hard. Of course, I speak that in hindsight. As a kid, you're not thinking about that. I was just like, why do I feel uncomfortable? But with the nurses... I felt super safe. I felt super great. And that's because I was under the impression that the male were going to hit me, female were going to support me. It's those things that say, you know, you're the therapist, Anna. And in my case, say it was the opposite. Like I've had prior negative experiences with female. That may be something that you don't know about, but that could, that could be a, a, a threat towards that connection because I haven't met you. I haven't done anything with you. I haven't even opened my mouth. I haven't even seen you. Yet I'm already judging or like, oh, Anaconda, where's she from? Oh, no, I, I want this type of person. And I think that happens with a lot of doctors. Uh, I received a training one time with many different doctors, and they said, like, one of my challenges is getting patients of the opposing gender or sexual preference or, or lifestyle, so many different things, because I feel like all of us naturally feel sometimes more more safe to connect with a certain person, whether it be because of their, their race, culture, right? Just, just something. We're looking to connect and we're more often than not afraid of, of just feeling yeah. alone. Oh, absolutely. For me, it was the total opposite. Like I, I had a therapist in Puerto Rico who was female and quite frankly, I just didn't connect with her. 
in any way, shape, or form. And it wasn't a bad experience. Like, she wasn't bad, but I didn't get much from it. And, and it was my own internal approach to it. It was the own barriers that I was putting up because I had a difficult time with females. And then when I came over here, I actually, and you mentioned speed dating before, I, I kind of approached it like, like a dating app. Like, this is what I'm looking for. In my mind, I was like, you know, I feel like I need two things. One, a, someone who's more objective. So I actually didn't want to work with a Hispanic therapist. And I'll get to that in a minute. And the other part of it is I've always felt more comfortable with males. And I kind of took a step back and I was like, my my friends my entire life, my closest friends were always male. To this day, my friends, the majority of them are male. I think I have like three or four female friends. Why am I fighting that? You know, like if I feel more comfortable talking to a male and it's actually, it became a joke with my therapist. Um, At one point, sometimes he would say like, maybe I should refer you to female therapist. And I would look, I would give him a death star. And he's like, well, someone's not ready for that conversation. You know, like you can make light of it. And then with regards to, I didn't want to go with a Hispanic therapist, nothing against my own culture. I just quite frankly, didn't want to feel like the things that I were, that I was going to talk about that I felt I struggled with were going to be justified or minimized like we talked a couple, a couple of weeks ago because of the cultural aspect and, and I should know better and, and I think that it you know I would think that a Hispanic therapist that I would go to is going to be as objective as you know uh, the white American male therapist that I have it was such like a, it gave me so much anxiety to think about it that I was like, you know what? No, I, I'm just, I'm going to go with it. And it thankfully it ended up working great. And I have a great connection with him, but it's little things like that, that we have to be mindful with regards to like, you know, if you feel safer in general with women and you're able to choose again, you, like you said, you know, you talked about primarily being males. It's interesting that unit that I was in, it was primarily females. Like there was no male therapist whatsoever. So, you know, if you're unable to choose, you know, that's a little bit of a different conversation. But if you're able to kind of look for a therapist, it's it's important to take note of who you feel comfortable on a day to day basis. Who are the people that you typically gravitate towards when you need support? I think that can be a very good way to go in feeling a little bit less <laughs> naturally anxious than uh, than we all are when we're going to therapy. There's going to be some scenarios where it's not a buffet where you can choose exactly what you want, right? So I think it's just important to recognize the context that what if there is no other option? It's just a matter of being aware, being aware that, look, that is a that is a hurdle we have to overcome. We're not saying that's not possible because I've had very successful relationships with a female and male therapist, but it took time. Now, something that was not really a case back then, but it is definitely something now is the online presence, much like right now, unrelated, but you know, my wife and I bought a house in December. We're dealing with some things where we need a plumber, electrician. Back in the day, you would look at the yellow pages and then you would hope that you get somebody that's kind of good. But now I'm like, oh, wait a minute, there's Facebook. So I've had this, un this weird process of like, what kind of picture am I looking for for, for a plumber, right? Am I yeah. looking for like the, the, the person or how many likes? But then on the therapist's perspective, it is important to be like, okay, so if Anna's going to be my, my therapist, let's see maybe some positive messaging, maybe Facebook Lives, maybe some short videos. But it's something that before I even get to sit down with you, we have an incredibly beautiful opportunity now that did not exist back in the day. Absolutely. So in your case, 
how how key do you think that online presence is now to develop that connection between the the patient or the person and the therapist? Most therapists actually have an online presence, and I was actually talking about this with a a, a friend slash colleague yesterday. Uh, we were talking a little bit more on the social media presence um, and what that looks like. A lot of it depends, you know, on on your your line of work. So I have a lot of friends who've established their own private practices, and they have a social media presence, so they do you know, Facebook lives and Instagram lives. I was actually, um, I was a guest in a, a colleague's uh, Instagram live a couple of weeks ago talking about the Jatea Puerto Rico incident. You know, I think it's it's important in the sense of people naturally Google you. I remember I once had a, uh, I met with a mother and I've always had this reaction to, not always, but oftentimes I've had this reaction to people looking at me like, oh, you're Dr. Conde? I think I, I look young and I'm very short, so it doesn't help either. People oftentimes have like this reaction like, oh, it's you. I've had, you know, people try to guess my age and everything. And that's, we can talk about that a little bit later on in the episode with regards to kind of like the relationship. But I remember I once had a parent and I think this was last year at the hospital. She was like, oh, you really are young. And I caught her, her tone like, you really are. Like she was confirming it. And I, and I looked at her, I was like, people kind of sometimes pick it up on my voice. And she's like, oh no, I saw your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and you know what? I was at the, f my first thought was like, why does she not trust me? You know? And then I was like, wait, I Google my dentist to see if he has good reviews. But I think it's a really good tool to utilize to let other people know like, hey, this is what I'm able to help you with. So for example, I am not highly trained to work with obsessive compulsive disorder. I am highly trained to work with trauma I have a pretty good foundation for family therapy. I wouldn't be necessarily your go-to for couples therapy. So, and a lot of people do use, um, oh my gosh, I think it's called psychologytoday.com. I think those are important in the sense of like, it can help ease someone's anxiety of like, oh, hey, they work with this. And in the same way, like, oh, if they don't, like, let's say you are struggling with quote unquote coming out and I, don't love that term, but let's say, quote unquote, coming out with your sexual identity and who you're as a person. If you search and, you know, it says Dr. Conde, you know, doesn't list LGBT population as, you know, population that they work with, then I would, I might be a little bit put off by that. I think most people are able to appreciate like putting a face to the name, you know? You know, growing up, I think that having that online presence would have made a world of change for me because more often than not, my fear was like, am I going to like you? What do you sound like? Because, you know, put yourself in my shoes, like I speak from a, a child's perspective. So it is my mother primarily contacting. So it's a lot of other people talking about me without me. Whereas imagine if my mother had a smartphone, you know, obviously we're talking about the 90s, not the case, but imagine she's like, oh, you know, pulls up Facebook. Hey, here's Anna, you know, and here's a video of Anna talking before I even engage with you. There is that sense of like, oh, that familiarity right now, you know, you and I are speaking right now. So somebody could theoretically listen to me based on these episodes and want to get some form of peer support, which I provide through my work. Or they could listen to you as a therapist and be like, hey, you know, here's somebody whose perspective I can provide. I actually subscribe to a couple of different podcasts, like the Savvy Psychologist, some short form content, some long form content. But it's all of, the, all of these opportunities to listen to the other person because from my perspective as that person that has seek therapy and understands the importance of it, if I'm going to share my story, 
the least that I can expect is that professional provider to share something. Not sure what, but something. What if I see a psychologist or, or therapist of any kind that does a Facebook Live, I'm like, hey, you get brownie points because I can actually engage with you. I can ask you a question before I go there, and that question may be the, deter- the, the determining factor if I actually do visit your office or not, or even get like, I mean, telehealth oh, is yeah. a thing right now, right? So even that is a completely different component, whereas... You know, you look at the, uh, as we're recording this, we still have a, a, a worldwide pandemic happening at different levels. Some states are more open than not. But an opportunity that has presented itself is that a lot of people have made themselves available online. So we've seen in some cl- some places where anxiety has gone up, suicide tendencies actually go down a bit. But it's because now I can seek my therapist from my chair. Whereas before, maybe I had to drive an entire hour and maybe I didn't have that, that gas money. Maybe my car was not as you know, up to shape to be able to drive to your office. But now we have all of these different opportunities. From, from your experience, I think we've done a pretty good job of talking about the opportunities for connection. What would you say is something that whether you talk about your experience from benefiting from therapy or providing what is something that just like this? This this is a disconnect. This is a big no no, and you immediately see just like uh, this is not working out. Interrupting. I am very cautious as a therapist to never interrupt, and I know something that has helped me connect with my therapist is that he does not interrupt me because I think you know it's just it makes you feel so heard and and valued that I actually do have this space, however short, because in retrospect, you know. 45, 50, 60 minutes a week is not much where I can just kind of be, you know, I think that has helped me and I have used that as well in, in hopes of developing a therapeutic rapport with someone, just providing them that space. And having said that, uh, I like to bring up uh, one topic that we wrote here is a top three ways to connect from both relationships, you know, from the therapist to the person and and vice versa. So I'm going to bring up the uh, first one and then Anna, if possible, you can bring up the uh, second one, which the first one is uh, being honest. This sounds like such an easy thing, but when you actually sit down there, even uh, even my my female therapist, so like I'm going to bring up the best possible scenario, right? So my female therapist, who I've been with for since I was like, wow, 18, I'm 30 now. I had a situation with her a couple of years ago where I finally wanted to share something else that was related to my trauma. And this is a person that I've been talking with since I was 18 years old. And that day that I sat down with her, I feel like it was day one because I'm like, whoa, you know, I'm going to share this brand new thing. I don't know how she's going to react. She could be asking me, Juan, why didn't you say this before? Like, I, I'm, I'm just filling my head with all this negativity. But then when I sat down with her, the first thing I said is, look, I'll be real. The reason I haven't brought this up is because I've been scared to bring this up. I haven't had this honest conversation with myself. So how can I have it with you? And just saying that before I actually said what I was going to say, I felt great because I'm like, hey, well, I, I got over that hurdle of being honest with me. So what do I got to lose? And that what do I have to lose mentality helped me because if we're not honest with ourselves, then who can we be honest with? And once that happens, and it's just like, legitimately, what do I have to lose? What do I have to lose by sharing that with my therapist whose purpose is to support me in this process and provide tools and knowledge and, and skill sets? And I think that that's something that's really essential. 
And definitely kind of the other side of, of, you know, the honesty part is like, don't be afraid to be honest about how uncomfortable therapy can be and how you, you know, maybe don't know how to go about it or how on your way there with your mother, they made a certain comment and you just really don't even want to talk anymore. Like therapy can be unbelievably uncomfortable. It can be very challenging. It can feel in a way almost invasive, to be quite honest. We're aware of that just because we don't necessarily say it outwardly because we tend to be very mindful and not want to label emotions or experiences for the the person in the room. It doesn't mean that we're not aware. So, you know, don't be afraid to let your therapist know, like, I really like I'm really uncomfortable. Like, I don't know. Like, I've had sessions where that's what we talk about. We talk about how uncomfortable they are about X thing. And some of them to this day, I don't know what X is. And that's okay, you know. Maybe that's not what they needed to talk about in the moment. They just need to talk about how unbelievably overwhelmed they were to just even think about it. So, you know, be honest about expectations. Be honest if you feel like you're already being judged. Um, And even to kind of normalize it a little bit more, even if you're like not in the mood, like I can't tell you the amount of times I've seen someone just kind of power through sessions. And, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's different in every setting. And if you're paying for it, it's certainly God knows I went to therapy tired after a day of work and maybe I wanted to go home and I still went because, you know, I had that time and it came out of pocket. But yeah. Be honest about kind of where you're at. Like really we're not, I, and I know it sounds stereotypical, but I, I wish I could just get people to believe like we're really not there to judge anybody. And we're human too. Like we get tired too. We, we understand that life is very difficult just because you're a therapist. It doesn't mean that we're immune to emotions and, and difficulties and challenges so just kind of let us know where you're at. Let us know if if it's just if you're not feeling it. You know, I, I've had conversations with with therapists, um, with families, not again, primarily an inpatient. So it was different because I'm, I wasn't going to be their long term therapist. But I've had families say like, well, you know, we really don't like Dr. So-and-so, but they've been with them for seven years now. And I'm like, and, you know, no disrespect to Dr. So-and-so, but if it's not working, have a conversation with them about it and then work towards closure and connecting with somebody else, hopefully. It's very uncomfortable, as you mentioned, but that level of honesty is great for both parts because, you know, I'm not a therapist, but I would appreciate knowing from the other side of like, hey, if you don't think this is working out, then it's good for you and me because at least we're being honest about that. And who knows, maybe even that alone creates an opportunity for connection. And I've also seen it be very empowering. Like, if you don't like me, and, and again, you know, an inpatient, it was very limited. There's only so much you can do with um, uh, four therapists for an entire unit. Sorry. So you couldn't really pick and choose necessarily. But, you know, I had a, I remember a specific patient who really just really struggled with me. And I couldn't really change the therapist for them. But what I did was I brought in one of my colleagues and we would kind of do joint sessions sometimes. And that really helped. So, you know, Again, it might not always be perfect, but unless you tell me, we don't know, and we're there to empower you. So absolutely, if you don't feel comfortable with me, I appreciate you being able to let me know. And if we're able to work towards something, I will get you to that next person. And then uh, after this one, the other topic is the importance of identifying goals with your therapist. So I love for you to actually start this one where... How important is it for that professional relationship, an emotional relationship, 
to be able to know where are we going, right? What is the north? Like, how do we know that this is actually geared towards that person's need? I feel like if you're just thinking, like, you as a person saying, like, you know, maybe I really should go to therapy or something, there's already something, whether consciously or not, that you're able to recognize that you might need a little bit of support with. Identifying what that is can be very helpful in taking the first step and also knowing that it's an investment in yourself or, you know, your family, if it's something that you're doing together with someone. Identifying a goal and identifying what you want to get from therapy can give you that north, like you're saying. And the beauty of it is that that can change. What was a goal, you know, three weeks ago might not be a goal right now. You know, like let's say you're someone who struggles significantly with your anxiety. Your first goal might be to be able to tell your spouse, like, hey, this is really impacting me more than you know. And then the next goal might be applying for a different job because you've hated the job that you've been at for seven years, but you're too anxious to really do anything about it. And that's that's okay. That's what we're here for. So, you know, if you can identify things that you want to do or get from, that's fine. And also, it doesn't have to be this huge goal. It can just be, I want to feel heard. That's a goal. Like if you haven't felt heard for a long time, that can be it. Um, now, I do want to say, if you are someone who attends services at, let's say, a community mental health clinic, sometimes you do have to kind of sit down with a therapist and identify more concrete goals. A lot of that depends kind of on agency-wise. The community health centers where I've worked at, we do kind of sit together with the patient and identify, uh, client, sorry, and identify goals. Um, and some of them can be even keeping certain appointments or working towards identifying protective factors. You know, it, it depends on the agency, but bring whatever it is that kind of you're struggling with. And if you feel like it might be helpful to word it in a different way, that's what we're here for. But if it's just to kind of be heard or have a place to talk about what you've never talked about with anybody, that's also okay. This is not my experience, um, but I, I attended I training for working with um, trans individuals who were at the point of um, surgery. And it was a little bit more kind of like on the supporting and letter writing and all that stuff is a little bit more technical. But the therapist that was giving it, um, she was talking about how she has in her office space, mind you, this was, you know, pre-pandemic, so things might be different, makeup and clothing and different items so that the, you know, the people who are there could dress to the gender to which they identified with. And that to me was kind of mind blowing. And that can be a goal being having a space where you're able to be who you are, that, that, that can be a goal. I think I just want to, you know, let people know, like it doesn't necessarily have to be this very structured clinical sounding goal. I think the most beautiful thing of what you mentioned is from my perspective, I remember the most rewarding and satisfying conversation I had with my therapist is that we had outlined some very specific goals. Uh, it was in 2009, I think, is when when this happened, 2009, 2007, where I was going back into like severe depression. She told me, look, just write down the things you don't like about yourself right now, but we're going to sit down and specify ways that you can overcome that. And I remember eventually we sat down and she was like, what? Like, w what do we do now? Because it was that satisfying feeling of, you did it. Yeah. You know, all, all these things that you outlined yourself, like, because it was me. It wasn't her telling me this is my problem. Once I was able to actually see, you know, the satisfying feeling of like crossing that off. She told me like, I mean, maybe I'll see you. Maybe we should see each other in like two months now, then see how things are going. 
I left that day. I went to a buffet. I'll be real. Nice. I went to a Chinese <laughs> buffet. I gorged, and like I just felt like you could punch me in the face and I would have smiled. But it's because I was able to not just identify the goal, but we were able to work towards those goals together. And that's the genuine relationship. And some of them, hey, we had to like rewrite like five times because maybe I wasn't clear about that. But then the other thing that I think is so essential is finding something in common. I think this just goes back to a a basic relationship. Like you mentioned the dentist. I think this applies to dentists. This applies to the person working in your car, the person mowing a lawn. It applies to all of that because you want to be able to have something in common with that person so you can have a conversation or feel more comfortable with that person despite what you're actually going to talk about. It's just like that that comfort food. I think that comfort level with that person, how essential do you think that is for you? Oh, very. And I think if we can also focus on the fact that, again, we're really not there to judge, like that can really help that connection. Because so, for example, let's say you are engaging in self-injurious behaviors every day. I feel like people think like, okay, well, the goal is to not do it. If you're doing it multiple times a day, every day, then the first goal might be to do it once a day, you know, or if you're doing it seven, doing it six. And on that seventh time, really trying your hardest to do something that's more connected towards healing and recovery. If you're utilizing substances, and this is not my area of expertise in working with community mental health agencies, I, I did do a little bit of work with with um, substances. If you're, let's say, let's say you're utilizing a substance to the point of you're not able to function at home or at work every day, the, the goals are going to be very tailored to tangible things. How can we work together towards having it be half a day and then gradually getting to a place where we can celebrate those victories? Because um, I also don't want to you know, don't misinterpret what I said earlier about it doesn't necessarily have to be something too strict. It all depends on where you're at, what you're struggling with, and how we can come together to identify how you can get the most from therapy. Exactly. I'm a person who, you know, I felt like I was very quiet a lot of the time because it was just kind of like the dynamic at home. And I think part of it is cultural too. So my goal for therapy was just like, I just want to be heard. And I and I don't want anyone to tell me that my feelings are not valid or that, you know, X or Y, Z had a reason for saying she should have said that or whatever. Like, I don't I need someone to be able to validate that space with me. But if you're struggling with something more significant or you just really need that structure because of how you process things, then let's make those goals tangible. You know, and, and, and one, I think you can speak more to this, but if we're working with someone who is struggling with significant symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder, it can't be, uh, okay, well then let's talk today type of, you know, uh, goal. <laughs> so it really is tailored to what it is that you're struggling with. But I, I, I did kind of want to bring up what I said first, because I feel that people sometimes just need a place to talk and, and they don't feel that that's enough to go to therapy. And that can certainly be enough. So depending on where you're at, the goal's can and, and should be adjusted to meet your needs and to have those goals be as concrete or as relaxed as you need them to be. I think this episode is going to have two different types of reactions. For somebody that has not actually engaged in therapy in this whole process, it may be surprising to see like these are very common sounding things. I think from the outside perspective, it's like, of course, you would identify goals. Of course, you would have eye contact. Of course, you would validate the person. Of course, you wouldn't invalidate the person. But in practice, 
based on our previous experiences, based on our culture, we don't even realize when we're doing that. We don't realize when we're interrupting the person. We may not realize when we are invalidating the person. So I think that's going to be one part. But then on the opposite side, I think a lot of people are going to be able to identify with this in the same way that you and I have had this really healthy conversation from both sides of the spectrum. I think it's just being able to say to, to the people, we just got to have we got to start having these conversations about just talking to one another and above everything, listening to one another. I think we sometimes go in from the patient's perspective with you're there to solve my problems. And then the other side can be, I'm there to solve your problem, but I can't, I can't even share how many times I've had people in support groups go, they feel great because they feel like there was a conversation happening, but there was no commitment from within, right? You can give me $20 and I'm going to feel good, but that doesn't necessarily have like a long-term sense of satisfaction. Whereas if both parts develop that connection and both parts listen to one another and we're honest and we identify those goals, but we also identify that we are, as you mentioned, human beings where, sure, I know there are some ethical boundaries in therapy and I completely understand that, but from the participant's point of view, just just knowing that you're willing to have these real conversations about me and just knowing that you're you're recognizing how I would like you to react and all that just makes me feel like, okay, then I'm going to share this new chapter of my life that I haven't shared with anybody. And then once I see that you're not invalidating me, once I see that you're not judging me, I'm going to continue sharing this. And I'm and everybody listening... I'm not speaking this because it sounds good. I'm saying because that's what helped me. That helped me as a child. That helped me as an adolescent. And I've also received therapy as an adult. So I've been through all three phases. And everything that I'm saying and what I love about Anna being part of the podcast with me is that I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a nurse. I'm not. I'm a human being that, sure, I've received trainings. Sure, I work in the mental health field, but from a peer support perspective, but the same way that I was able to educate myself, thanks to the support of my professional resources, anybody else can also do this. It's just about being open with ourselves. So, uh, Anna, I, th- I think we could have talked about this. For, this is the longest episode we've definitely done. And it, it feels like the shortest. I think it, it speaks to the fact that if we don't connect we can be saying a lot of words. And I think that this applies to, to even podcasts. You know, you and I can be speaking a lot of words here, but there, there can be no connection. And I think when the connection is there, I remember when I had my, my favorite sessions with my therapist is when I feel like, wait a minute, time's up. Yeah. <laughs> you, you feel that because when I check my phone or check my watch to figure out what time it was, that was a bad session for me because I'm like, oh man, this time it's not ending but when you're connecting, time just, just flies by, kind of like this episode, right? Yeah, and that's what we can always hope for and what we aim for. And I think finding something in common as, you know, kind of like the third thing that we identified as, you know, ways to connect, it, it can it can also be kind of about that moment, you know, how I can sort of let you know the reaction that I saw, you know, how we kind of were both there as you shared something. And I've always, you know, I think it's different because I work primarily with adolescents and, and children. So children will just ask you like, hey, how old are you, miss? <laughs> so, you know, it's it's different. And, and like you said, you know, there's there's ethical guidelines and there is a little bit of a separation and, and everybody manages those things quite differently. Um, but I've always told, again, teenagers, 
I know it's really hard for you to be in this room and be expected to talk all about yourself to a total stranger because that's that's what I am to a lot of people and that that's what you are at the beginning of, of a, a therapeutic relationship even if you saw them on Facebook even if you read up on them heck even if you've seen them before <laughs> if you are kind of just restarting therapy or anything like that it's a brand new relationship and I, I I'm always very honest I say like you know like if there's something that you want to ask feel free to do so if I am unable to answer it I'll let you know. And, and part of that is kind of maintaining a little bit of the, the objectivity. And, and we want to make sure that this continues to be your space. Um, that's my style. It's not necessarily every therapist style. And I think also it depends on the age group. Like I've never asked my therapist a question. Mind you, I'm, I'm in a unique position. Don't be afraid to also kind of bring something up. Like I've had kids ask me like, miss, what kind of music do you listen to? And stuff like that. Like we're able to connect on on simple things as well. I think if there's like uh, just one word that we can we can provide some closure for this episode is that if I once again, as a person in recovery, am going to be incredibly vulnerable with you as a therapist, we just want a little bit of that. You know, we know we can't have like one to one, so I can't share this, and then you're just you're just going to shoot something right back at me. I know that is not the relationship. But even as you mentioned, even if you just let me know. Like just music genre, just anything to know that I'm speaking to another human being, it's going to warm me up. I'm going to open up. So I'm, I'm so thankful we had a chance to talk about this episode. I feel like out of all the ones, this is the one that we kind of like rewrote and rewrote and went back and forth and be like, okay, so how can we really talk about this? Because it may sound like exaggerated or something, but this can save a person's life. I would have loved to have somebody link me to this episode when I was 14 through 17. Because I feel like just so many people are afraid to knock on that door, not even sit down, just like make the call or knock on the door. So anybody, if you would like us to do a, a follow up episode at some point or in the future or just react, uh, please do reach out to us on Facebook. It's going to be the best way to do so. Happy to fill. There's also technically Twitter and other stuff. But for the sake of the season, I think it's just a lot better if we can do that there. Uh, you can also send an email to Juan at happy And if this episode is in in some way, shape, or form beneficial for you or somebody else, please just consider sharing it. This is just an open resource for the community. I know for experience, some places have actually just played some episodes for the people in the community because we just want to have the conversations happen. The, the conversation does not end when we end this episode. If anything, this is just the beginning of many conversations that can be had in your community. So don't forget to leave that five-star review on Apple Podcast Stitcher. Even Facebook, you can do that. And up until next time, we will be back with more episodes of Happy to Fail. So take care and stay safe.